It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Oremus. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, January 16th. On today's show, we'll talk about the latest stop on the net neutrality train and what the Senate is doing to throw a wrench in the FCC's gears. We'll also discuss how Congress is set to renew a major piece of Internet mass surveillance legislation. Later, we'll be joined by Siva Vadyanathan, a professor of media studies at University of Virginia, to talk about Facebook's big changes to how its news feed works and what they might mean for the way we read the news and talk to each other online. And lastly, don't close my tabs. Back by popular demand, thanks to those who asked where it went last week during our CES coverage, we'll be discussing our picks for the best on the web this week. All right, April. So we're back from CES in Las Vegas, and mm-hmm. I think it was very rude of the tech world not to pause and stop making news <laughs> while we were gone. Because there was a pause at CES, right? The lights went out in the middle of the largest electronics consumer electronics show in the world. So. Yeah, that, that was exciting. I was actually I wrote about this for Slate, but I was actually on a Samsung VR ride at the time, and the funny thing was <laughs> that nobody noticed the power had gone out because our little mobile VR headsets were still showing this weird bobsled race that we were on, and so the whole convention hall was in pandemonium and we were all still sitting there watching our little VR game. So much for VR as a path to kind of increase people's empathy. <laughs> um, I guess it depends on everything. Um, but but no, the news did not stop. And, and, and one thing that um, kept chugging along is the Senate's attempt to uh, undo what the FCC did uh, towards the end of last year, which was also to undo uh, the net neutrality rules that were passed under President Obama. Um, You know, Senate Democrats are trying hard to uh, gather enough votes to pass a Congressional Review Act, uh, which would essentially kind of like undo the FCC's uh, kind of regulatory push uh, that they passed at the end of, of December. All right, wait, so help me out here. So the, so the FCC passed net neutrality rules under Obama, yes. and then the FCC came back this winter under Trump and Ajit Pai, and they rolled back those net neutrality rules. And now the the Senate's trying to roll them forward again? Yeah, now the Senate is trying to restore them, essentially. And and in order to do that, they need a majority in the House and the Senate. They now have 50 votes, they announced on Monday. Uh, they need 51 in the Senate to uh, push that along. And then, you know, of course, they need much more in the House, which is going to be a lot, uh, you know, bigger uphill climb. And then the other issue with this is that Trump can choose not to 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 sign off on this, even if they do get a majority, you know, in, in, in both bodies. And so it's it's a it's a big gamble and and you know my assumption is that this will likely still kind of play out in the courts in terms of whether or not Ajit's pie to undo the network neutrality protections have sticking power uh but it's certainly a rallying moment for democrats that's without a doubt yeah maybe democrats can spend the entire next 2 years just 
just rolling back um, net neutrality, or sorry, rolling forward net neutrality in one chamber of the legislature again and again, like the Republicans did with Obamacare. Right, right. And so that wasn't the only thing um, that uh, kind of continued to chug along while we were trying all the latest gadgets and gizmos at the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. The House voted to renew uh, the warrantless Internet surveillance program that was set to expire on Friday. Uh, and now the Senate is set to vote uh, to renew that on Tuesday. And, uh, and, and you know, this is a debate that uh, that pops up regularly. It definitely came to the fore, you know, after the Snowden disclosures in 2013. But, uh, but you know, these, these programs do uh, expire and then they have to get renewed. But they tend to get they tend to get renewed for sure. Yeah, and so we've seen in the news recently. I think there are some prominent Democrats who are actually supporting renewing this, which might surprise some people who view the Democratic Party as trying to sort of form this resistance to the Trump administration, and also as potentially being more concerned with civil liberties than with uh, you know spying on uh, Americans and our associates abroad to stop terrorism. Why is it that some prominent Democrats are going along with this? Well, you know, when it comes to digital surveillance, it's 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 never been a clean party line vote, right? We've always seen some Democrats that that really are more in sync with the security community on this, and and do see you know broad surveillance powers in the nation's best national security interest. You know, that said, uh, civil liberties advocates like the ACLU or the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where full disclosure, I, I worked briefly, um, do say that that these programs actually you know step out of bounds of the Constitution because. You know, although they say that they're really only supposed to collect data from people who are not Americans, the NSA has admitted that, you know, in its dragnet, Americans' data is sucked on too. And that could be read as a violation uh, of the Fourth Amendment. It could be, you know, read as unconstitutional. And, you know, the the when these programs are, are set to renew, it's a, it's also a moment to to perhaps scale them back or to bring them back in lines of, of the Constitution, um, as some civil liberties a- advocates argue. Uh, but, you know, it's it seems like, uh, you know, some Democrats, including Pelosi and Schiff on the House side, did vote to renew them. And uh, and some Democratic senators, you know, might might fall in line with them as well. Okay, yeah, and one thing that's interesting here from a Silicon Valley perspective is that the big tech companies have not been out front in this debate. I mean, they all came out after the Snowden revelations and expressed their, you know, how shocked and appalled they were, and and you know that they didn't endorse uh, all these backdoors to their data and that sort of thing. But you know, now that it's up for reauthorization, we're not hearing a lot from them, and it, you know that might be partly because these days the government is perceived as only one of many threats to our privacy. I mean, these these big Silicon Valley companies, aren't they collecting a lot of these same kinds of, of data on Americans all the time? Certainly. You know, the, I mean, the stuff that, that the NSA has been charged with collecting things like browsing habits or search terms, you know, or, or email metadata or your phone call metadata. These are things that companies already have at their disposable at their disposal and, and are collecting, um, usually, though, for, for the purpose of advertising to you or for catering their product to you in a certain way. Um, it's much different, though, one would argue, when the government does it um, because the government holds all the powers that a state does. Right. You know, Google can't um, arrest you or make assumptions about you uh, that that could bring you under suspicion of federal law enforcement um, in the same way like, you know, the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security can. 
That said, the fact that these companies do do that is what enables this surveillance, right? And so uh, the fact that they have this information means that the government can ostensibly ask for it. Another big difference I'll point out briefly is that uh, it, you know, whistleblowers have shown that the government isn't just collecting this like data, like not just the ones and zeros, but they're also actually sitting on the wire, right? So we know that uh, thanks to whistleblower Mark Klein at the AT&T facility, there was, uh, you know, fiber optic splitters on the cables where they were just sucking all that internet traffic off and, uh, and you know, ostensibly analyzing that in some way. It's hard to know exactly what they were doing with the, with the information because it's a secret program. But the mechanisms are a bit different. The spirit, though, can very much uh, be said to, to, be, to be quite similar. All right, that's where we're going to leave it for now. Coming up after the break, we'll have an interview with University of Virginia Professor of Media Studies, Siva Vaidyanathan. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Our guest today is Siva Vaidyanathan. He is the Robertson Professor of Media Studies and Director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. He's written several books, including The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry. I believe he is working on a book right now about Facebook's newsfeed, which is germane because that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the big changes that Facebook announced at the end of last week, whereby we're going to see fewer posts from pages and journalistic publications and brands in our newsfeed. We're going to see more posts from our friends and family and random high school classmates that we've forgotten about. And we're also going to see more posts that are generating discussion among our friends. So posts that people in our network are commenting on, as opposed to just watching or reading or liking. We're going to talk with uh, with Siva about what that all means for the way we communicate, what it means for the media and democracy. Siva, welcome to If Then. Hey, thanks. Uh, thanks, Will. April, good to, good to speak to you. So, what do you make of these latest changes? I mean, it seems like on the one hand, Facebook got bashed for facilitating fake news and for uh, for its outsized role in the media ecosystem, especially in light of the 2016 elections and the ongoing polarization of our electorate. Now they're pulling back. Maybe that seems like a good thing. On the other hand, I think you've warned in the past about the dangers of Facebook pulling away for taking responsibility for the news and the journalism that we see in our feed. So how are you making sense of this? Yeah, when I thought about the changes that they announced um, in the newsfeed, it made me think much more about the question of of happiness, of satisfaction, of mental health than it did about news, about fake news, about propaganda, about hate speech. I tend to think that Facebook has, the people at Facebook, have tended to ignore or downgrade the rather obvious influence that 
the medium has had on our public sphere. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're not comfortable with the fact that human beings perform politics on Facebook. Uh, they would rather we did less of that. Uh, they, they're not comfortable with the fact that they don't seem to have an answer because there probably is no answer to promoting, uh, work from a set of responsible publications and downgrading work that comes from publications that you or I, or people who, you know, read slate, subscribe to slate podcasts would think of as responsible, right? They, they don't want to be in that editorial role. It makes them feel really, really uncomfortable, really weird, but they love the abstract. They love talking about meaningful social interactions. The problem is the word meaningful is meaningless. So, so just to, 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 to trace back a little bit, I mean, of course, like in order for a, pro- a democracy to properly function, people have to have access to, you know, good information so that they can vote meaningfully, as meaningless yeah. as that word is. <laughs> and, you know, that's why we have laws about media ownership and, and you know, dominance and, and things like that when it comes to uh, how we get information. And, and Facebook has largely evaded a lot of those regulations because they're not traditional, right? They're a social platform. Um, one thing that, that came up uh, for me, though, and what you were saying is that Facebook, I think it's really resonant for me that to think of Facebook as a place that doesn't want to encourage political communication, because I look at how many activists that I've seen, um, you know, particularly Black Lives Matter activists that um, that have, uh, you know, been kicked off Facebook, put in Facebook jail for a short amount of time uh, because they were talking about very difficult issues. Right. Or they were, you know, making a post that addressed, you know, dear white people or something like that. And right, and, right. Um, and so it's not just a matter of bots or a matter of uh, fake news in your feed. It's also they, they seem to be really bad at, at just being a place where people can can organize, you know, with confidence. So if you think about that challenge, right, who, who is legitimate, who can speak Mm -hmm. legitimately about political issues, many of which involve violence, many of which involve sex, many of which involve just, you know, terrible things human beings do to each other and some nice things that human beings do with each other or for each other, right? Who can have a voice on Facebook? There is no simple answer to that. The fact that Facebook has found itself so powerful, so pervasive, so influential, almost 2.2 billion users around the world. That means that, you know, every day they're stuck with these really hard problems. I think after 2011, Facebook had a moment of, of pride when, you know, word went out that, that Egyptian activists were using Facebook and, right. oh my gosh, we can help liberate the world. Not realizing that it wasn't that simple. <laughs> you know, look, Facebook is an incredibly powerful tool for organization. It's one of the best tools for organization I think we've ever had. It is a terrible tool for deliberation, right? Mm. It, it it's 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 not designed well. Graphically, it's not designed well for people to interact with each other in a respectful and responsible way to keep a line of argument going. To uh, to be able to respond to nuances in arguments, right? So, so Siva, give me an example. You mentioned how the design choices that Facebook has made are actually antithetical to nuanced discussion or debate. Can you give me an example? I mean, what is it in Facebook's interface that prevents people from having, uh, you know, a, a sort of uh, complex back and forth or a productive back and forth on there? Because that seems like it's going to become really important if all of a sudden the the number of comments and the length of comments. I happen to know that's another 
signal they'll be looking at um, are going to determine what we see in our feed. Yeah, it has to do with um, what gets revealed on the newsfeed as you glance at it, whether it's on a mobile device or on on a laptop and a, and a web browser, right? Um, what you see first is the visual content. Facebook is fundamentally a photo album uh, at, at first glance, right? It is a series of images with some framing titles. And the framing titles can be clickbaity, although, you know, Facebook's trying to limit that. It has it has ways of looking for those cues. So it really is how clickbaity the image is that attracts attention. Most of your own commentary is hidden. Most of the, if it's a news article, most of the first paragraph is hidden. You might see 20 words. Then if you click, if you're motivated to click, you'll see a few more words. And then you can join the comment stream. But often you're only invited to join the comment stream at the very bottom. Thus, you're never really presented with the full range of comments. If there's something that's been up on your page for 24, 48 hours, and it's already generated 50 comments, and a person jumps in, you, I'm sure you've seen this happen, person jumps in with like a comment and a, a piece of advice or a qualification or a question, you know, at some point higher in the thread, it's already been addressed. It's it, Someone's already dug deep into it. So that person's already shut out of what had already happened there. Unless that person takes the time and really who does, it really creates cacophony. It's like a noisy bar where you just are walking by a conversation and you go, oh yeah, I have a thought about that. And you say something and then everyone turns around and looks at you like, yeah, we're, we've already done that. Like move along. You know, it, it, it actually creates a sort of awkward, unfriendly set of interactions rather than anything deep. Now, maybe it's impossible to, 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 to expect it, but that's part of the problem is that, that we've just decided to gravitate our political lives and much of our intellectual lives to this medium for which it was not designed. Thinking about Facebook as a place that is trying to morph into kind of a greeting card, friends and family zone where we just comment on each other's, you know, bad day or, or you know, uh, new accomplishment in life. And, and you know, if that's what they're seeing kind of beget the type of engagement that they would like to see more of, you know, for, for someone like me who finds a lot of these types of announcements in- incredibly annoying, <laughs> I'm curious um, – you know, is this going to make, you know, Facebook worse? Like, what what if the last thing you want to see is people's, you know, verbose, you know, commentary on, you know, something that happened to them today or, or how they're making this huge life change that really isn't actually that big of a deal to anybody but them. And I'm really happy for them, but I don't want to see it. You know, like, I, I you know, I think that Facebook might be grossly underestimating how uninteresting so many people find their friends and family. Um, well, and so this is certainly an experiment. I, at least I'm reading it as one. Uh, another one on the roller coaster that is Facebook. So, yes, it's an experiment, but it's an experiment that's actually been going on for at least six months. So if you oh. look at the data that Parsley has been putting out about, you know, Parsley works is a service that works for a, lo- a lot of the major online news services, including Slate's, the Wall Street Journal, right. Condé Nast properties. Oh, great. Yeah. Right. So um, it, they, they've released a report in recent weeks showing the pretty serious and steady drop off in links from Facebook starting about six months ago. So my sense is that Facebook actually started rolling this out or, or A-B testing it among certain communities uh, about six months ago. And they're actually constantly measuring uh, to see whether their hypothesis is correct. Now, two things. One, 
Um, yeah, they didn't ask you, April, but, <laughs> but I know um, that's and, probably a good and, thing. <laughs> and I'm sure there are going to be people who find the newer version of the friends and family Facebook to be less interesting, um, less satisfying. Uh, but overall, I'm I'm confident that they know the motivations, or at least they know what their users oh, sure. have been telling them. Uh, and and think about it though, like uh, when you think about the Facebook of 2000. 7 2008 like 10 years ago facebook 10 years ago was really about keeping up with the puppies and the babies but as human beings uh we started importing our human passions uh to facebook whether those passions were it became a performance exactly right right. yeah it became a way for us to demonstrate what we're interested in where we want to go i mean even the interest function on the events where you can like star that you're interested in something that's just another performance feature i actually miss i actually miss the original facebook where it was just a profile that you put up and you said like what books you liked and what movies you liked like what happened to that i like dune yeah what happened to that Well, so it's like it became more dynamic, right? It became more about the now and it became more about um, interaction rather than declaration or demonstration. Mm. But we never we users that. So to Facebook, it changed to we users. We still perform, but now we perform dynamically. Um, So every day we have to remind the world, this is what I like. I like golden retrievers. I like liberal politics. I like. 1980s punk rock. Okay. I declare those things with some regularity on my Facebook feed. I don't, I don't even know that I say to myself, it's time for me to redeclare my identity to all of my friends. I'm a Yankees fan, you know, Red Sox fans just have to deal with it. Right. But I do it all the time. The last question I wanted to ask you is what about in the, what about the effects in the rest of the world of this newsfeed change? I mean, you know, obviously a lot of the media that covers Facebook is here in the United States, but Facebook does have a, a, it's really a global network and the United States is a small minority of all people who use Facebook. Are there, are there effects that you could see in the developing world and other parts of the world that maybe are not getting enough attention here from these changes? Well, so one thing we don't know because Facebook is never you know, uh, transparent about this stuff. We don't know whether this change is a global change. We do know that there are a handful of countries around the world where in recent years, actually recent months, Facebook has been removing almost all journalism from the newsfeed and creating a separate tab feed where one has to actively go to choose to live that life. Um, and they were trying to figure out if that would work. And what happened was in a lot of places in the world where you know, independent journalism is struggling so hard to find a voice. Independent journalism just disappeared because no one was going to that other other tab, you know. So it can have tremendous effects. Basically, Facebook is constantly socially engineering us and, and intellectually engineering us and politically engineering us. And it's doing so, so clumsily, you know, so, so um, poorly and without any sort of transparency or or, or, or consideration. But here's the thing about, about Facebook with any of these changes. The problems with Facebook um, are endemic to the system. The, anytime you want a, a social media system that is going to join 2.2 billion people around the world and have a remarkably powerful, the most powerful advertising targeting system ever created, you're going to have all of the problems that we have documented over the past two years uh, you're going to see the hijacking of Facebook by uh, nefarious forces, including authoritarian forces. You're going to see uh, you're going to see commercial exploitation get all weird. You're going to see journalism get hurt because advertising keeps flowing to 
uh, to Facebook and away from, uh, you know, actual sources of journalism that pay journalists, right? So all of these pernicious effects are not going to change with this change or anything else. The problem with Facebook is Facebook. I think we're in for much more of the same set of trends, regardless of this particular change. I think it's easy to put up to generate hypotheses about how this change might affect different parts of the world. But I think we're going to have to wait many months, maybe even years to see the effects. All right, Siva. Well, you know, I had some optimism when this was first announced that maybe this means that news publishers will have to find better ways to reach their audience. Maybe news readers will find better places to read the news than on Facebook. You've now convinced me that uh, that there's probably nothing good going to come out of this change after all, because people don't really go to seek out the news, honestly, uh, at least the average Facebook user outside of their feed. Um, anyway, Siva Vaidyanathan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was It was great to hear your thoughts on this. My pleasure. All right, one more quick break and then don't close my tab. Some of our favorite things we've seen online this week. It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs, some of our favorite stories we saw online this week. April, what tab could you not close? So my tab this week is is something that uh, actually came out towards the end of last week, but I've been thinking about it for days. It's called The Strange Brands in Your Instagram Feed from The Atlantic by Alexis Madrigal. Uh, And it is about an ad that he saw that inspired him to buy a coat on Instagram that was much cheaper than he thought it would be. And so he investigated what these kinds of, you know, pop-up shops are and learned that uh, that they're made with this app called Spotify, uh, Shopify, rather. Have, Have you heard of Shopify before, Will? I can't keep track of all the FIs. I can keep track of Spotify and then the rest of them, like Storify or Shopify, they just all run together for me. Right. Well, Shopify kind of like lets you set up a pop-up shop, essentially. Uh, and, you know, if you're able to, in the way, you know, Alexis described some of these stores uh, do, you can actually uh, set up a relationship with manufacturers in China to do drop shipping. So you kind of set up a shop with attractive photos, and then you actually don't have any overhead. You don't have to deal with inventory or anything. You're just kind of this through between. And there is this kind of whole class of uh, internet money makers out there who are setting up these pop-up shops with very cheap products. And, you know, they're it's kind of it seems like kind of a get rich quick scheme kind of vibe, but it's clearly working for many people. And I see a lot of ads in my Instagram feed, too, from these random, authentic looking shops. Right. Have you seen these before in your in your feed? Yes, this is amazing. I'm so glad he wrote this story. Alexis really has this knack for like some some weird thing happens in the world. And then he dives so deep until he's gotten to the bottom of it and <laughs> unraveled a, a weird world beneath the one we live in. And, and this one was is the world of, of weird Instagram ads. And I found it fascinating because you see these ads in your feed and you're like, wow, I've never heard of these brands making these really amazing looking products. And it turns out that there's like there's really not much of a product to back up this this glossy marketing. Can I 
actually quote from the story. Just you, you flagged it for me, and I loved it so much. I want to read an excerpt. He said that several weeks later, the coat showed up in a black plastic bag emblazoned with the markings of China Post, that nation's postal service. I tore it open and pulled out the coat. The material has the softness of a Las Vegas carpet and the rich sheen of a velour jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. The fabric is so synthetic, it could probably be refined into bunker fuel for a ship. It was technically the item I ordered, only shabbier than I expected in every aspect. Right. And, you know, he, he goes through um, this 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 kid who has this YouTube video series named Rory Gannon about how to set up a shop. And what's really interesting is that in the process of like he does this like day by day thing and he gets tens of thousands of people are watching these videos that he's making as he sets up this shop and he promises to make a lot of money. The problem is, though, is that as he's making these videos in this kind of diary format, other people start to set up a shop, too, based on his instructions. And all of a sudden his shop isn't as successful as he says it's going to be because he teaches people how to compete with him, essentially. So um, really interesting story about a a new type of internet commerce that's popping up, one that uh, is kind of questionable in terms of uh, how it pretends, how often these stores pretend to be more authentic than they are, Um, but but certainly something to keep track of, particularly if these are shops without any overhead, right? Um, Yeah, it's kind of ironic that that they're really selling authenticity in the marketing. And then, of course, the whole thing turns out to be a sham. Often that's the case, right? So, like, the ads that I see are, like, you know, outdoorsy people with, like, boots and, like, by a campfire and this with this attractive flannel. And I'm like, oh, that's an attractive flannel, you know? (laughs) And it's, like, you know, it seems tailor-made for me. Um, And then I have ordered something from an Instagram ad before, and it was super cheap. And now I'm curious if it was just some fake kind of ghost store. Um, Will, uh, just to move on, you know, there's always so much on the Internet. What, What sparked your interest? My tab this week is a story from The Verge. And the headline is, Google, scare quote, fixed its racist algorithm by removing gorillas from its image labeling tech. That might not make a lot of sense to you if you don't remember the context mm. for this story. The context is that a couple years ago, Google Photos um, came out with a new AI algorithm that would automatically recognize faces this. in your photo album. Yeah, it would, it would recognize your friends' faces and put labels on them. It promised to do all sorts of, of AI wizardry, like sorting your photos in different ways and making smart albums and GIFs and all that kind of thing. It worked really well for a lot of people. And then it worked really horribly in at least one respect, which is that people noticed that Google Photos was classifying black people as gorillas. Now, it took a little bit of time for people to get up to the bottom of why this was happening. But basically, the consensus was that Google's training set. So the data that it trained this AI on Mm -hmm. was not a group of diverse faces. It was probably mostly white people. And so the system never learned how to identify a black person's face. And when it saw someone with dark skin, it actually thought that was a gorilla. Now, this is, uh, this is, you know, the sort of, it was sort of a poster child for algorithmic bias and the way that biases in our offline society can get encoded in artificial intelligence and in seemingly objective algorithms. The update to this story is that it turns out Google still hasn't fixed the problem. I mean, this is incredible. This is the company in the world that probably has the greatest assemblage of AI coding talent. And all they did was they changed the algorithm so that it's no longer allowed to label anything as gorillas. 
and they still have not actually retrained the algorithm on a more diverse training set of data to get it to appropriately recognize black people's faces. This is kind of a longstanding problem for Google. Just, you know, even outside of its, you know, photo labeling AI, the company has struggled to uh, surface search results, you know, that aren't racist or in its advertising by tools, right? We learned that from that BuzzFeed story earlier this year, uh, you know, that was that was kind of curbing from the Facebook one about how um, Google's uh, advertising uh, AI was actually suggesting racist phrases with which to target people, right? So so this problem of like Google's, uh, you know, tech and its, its artificial intelligence systems, you know, actually having kind of uh, – very, very problematic responses baked in um, is is nothing new, right? Yeah, that's right. And you see these examples crop up now and then. I actually saw one in my Twitter feed on the way in to record the show today, where if you type in illegals should in Google search, it auto-completes to illegals should be shot on sight. No! To me, it's just, yeah, yeah. It, it, and I just, I just tried it, and it's doing that. Right. Um, and so if there were more diverse people working at these companies ostensibly in the testing phase of these products, you know, this type of these type of really egregious, you know, uh, results, you know, might be weeded out. Right. Yeah. And then something like the Google Photos episode in particular undermines the counterclaim that you often hear, which is, oh, well, our algorithm is just reflecting society. You know, we're not making these editorial choices. We can't help it if people are racist and you get racist search results. Well, in fact, Google does get control over the training data that it uses for its AI. And, you know, we ended up with the the system labeling black people as gorillas. This is something I've written about a bit. Uh, uh, some of this problem, and Google certainly doesn't have it because they generally most of their own training data, I believe. But when it comes to AI um, peddling, you know, kind of uh, existing, you know, racist uh, tropes and what have you, you know, in, in the results that they, that they give out, often it has to do with the fact that the training data that is publicly available for free, the public domain training data, you know, is uh, was 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 made before they could put a copyright claim on it, and therefore is primarily white. And we see that a lot with health data. Um, you know, we see that with just basically any old photo data set. Uh, there's you know a history of racism in this country, and that's reflected in the data that we have on hand, and the data that we have on hand is feeding into our systems, and and it seems perpetual unless you know somebody presses a hard stop. All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Siva Vaidyanathan, for joining us. You can find him on Twitter at S-I-V-A-V-A-I-D. We also have a favor to ask of our listeners. You've heard this before if you're a regular listener. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and Stitcher and wherever you listen and leave us a review. Please. It does a lot for us helping us get the word out about the show. We really do appreciate it. It helps other people find the show, too. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. We'll see you next week. Bye.